Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi folks and welcome to the episode and this week, well Paul, we're going into the forest and those of you who know me, know me and the forest do not get on very well so Paulie, you're going to be doing the four wheel driving (laughs) Alright, okay, so today I want to talk about someone, a real hero of mine and someone we've alluded to a couple of times on previous episodes someone who's often been dismissed as a bit of a myth or a legend but someone who I think has had an enormous impact both on the psyche and the culture of various nations and certainly a major impact on me in terms of my journey as a historian. I'm talking about the Green Man. Okay, the Green Man. This isn't some minor character in the Marvel Universe I haven't heard about, right? No, no, he's not, Mikey. But he is sometimes labelled as a bit of a gargoyle or a grotesque. And certainly, depictions of him are usually centred around the old pagan motif of a man, a man's face, emerging from the leaves of a forest. And so over the years, he has sometimes been marked down as a quirk, you know, just another example of English eccentricity. But you see, Mikey, I think that's a mistake. And it's most probably down to those numerous Green Man pub signs you've seen swinging above the entrances dotted around the UK, a bit like heraldic shields. Yep, I've seen those signs. <laughs> but look, it is true. You had the Green Man in the pub, like the Red Lion, the Moon Underwater, you know, George Orwell's classic fictional pub. The Green Man is one of those pub names that does crop up again and again. And look, it is right to say that a lot of the sources we have for the Green Man originate in England. There are definite links with other popular cultural figures such as Jack in the Green with the May Day processions, the May Day revels, and the the forest sprites, the most famous, of course, being Puck, Robin Goodfellow in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Hang on, now that you mention it, the Green Man, didn't we also talk about him back in that Christmas special? In the Christmas special, exactly, because he's also a bit of a forerunner when tracing the emergence of that other iconic medieval figure, Father Christmas. Okay, so the Green Man, who exactly was he then? Well, he definitely was a he, that's right, Mikey. And as I said, he's probably the oldest antecedent to that Jack in the Green Robin Goodfellow character of English folk tales. He's also very much a man of the forest, perhaps even lord of the forest, and you could argue he's a sort of masculine partner to Mother Earth, or even an earthly version of the man in the moon. But interestingly, the most common place to come across him, for you know, if you wanted to go out looking for him, is actually in the stone and the wood carvings up in the eaves and the misericords above the pews and the choir stalls of English churches. Hang on a minute, but didn't you say he was also a pagan figure that he predates Christianity? Yes, but there he is, time and again, looking down on English congregations. In fact, he's even in abbeys, minsters, cathedrals, right up to Thomas Becket's Canterbury Cathedral. Yet, like I said at the beginning, the reason why I think he's so important is he's not just confined to England. He crops up all over Europe in the the Notre Dame in Paris. He's in the 13th century Chartres Cathedral in France, in Spain, Italy, even Germany. And in my opinion, Mikey, he's another 
clear example of how Christianity, you know, in those early days, it just bolted itself onto what was already there, dressed it up into new bits of context, and then used it as and when to its advantage. Which you could say about pretty much any religion. Well, precisely. Certainly the, the two so-called main religions of Christianity and Islam. And I mention Islam deliberately, Mikey, because this is why I first started digging around the whole Green Man story during some of my earlier studies. You see, the Green Man also seems to have made the crossover into the Muslim world. So you can find him in North Africa, the Middle East, Arabia. Incredibly, he even pops up in Jain temples in Rajasthan and India and various other spots along the old Silk Roads. And you see, that's why I've ended up becoming fascinated with this Green Man, my hero. But that being the case, Mikey, I can't tell the story of the Green Man without first mentioning another hero of mine, Ibn Battuta. Hi folks, so today we're talking about this almost ubiquitous folkloric character, the Green Man. But let's be honest, Paul, with you, most roads lead to silk. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Mikey, because it did all start with my research into the silk roads when I kept coming across references to a religious, semi-religious figure in many of the Islamic texts I was reading, referring to Kidir or Al-Kidir, a sort of mystical messenger of God possessing great wisdom who's described but not actually mentioned by name in the Quran. Particularly one story where he comes to the help of Moses. Moses, of course, featuring as much in the Quran as he does in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of the stories I was coming across were being told in connection to the widespread Sufi traditions of Islam. Now, Sufis are sort of mystical wise men of Islam themselves. And over the centuries, they've built up followings across the Muslim world, but particularly in Central Asia, Persia and Eastern Turkey, precisely the sort of cities and hubs that form the basis for the emerging Silk Roads networks. And it turns out, this name Al-Qadir, it shares exactly the same root as the Arabic Al-Akhtar or Al-Qadra, meaning green or virgin, green being the colour of peace in Islam. So what you're saying, it's sort of an Islamic equivalent of your green man. Exactly. And like I said, several Sufi orders claim to have been brought about through some sort of divine intervention via this Al-Qadir figure. And as a kind of mysterious prophet, the eternal wanderer, they consider him to be their master. In fact, for some of them, Al-Qadir symbolises access to the divine mystery, the, the Gayab itself. Now, in amongst all these Islamic scholars is a guy who put me onto all this, a 14th century Islamic explorer by the name of Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Battuta, better known simply as Ibn Battuta. I've got to say, Paul, that's a new one for me. OK, well, Ibn Battuta, as I said, is 14th century. He's born in Tangiers, present-day Morocco, and he's a Berber. Now, you know how in that earlier episode I said that I've never really rated Marco Polo and talked about how Marco, even if he did do all the travelling he claimed to have done, really he owed his success primarily to the initiatives of his father. Well, his father and his uncle, right? His father and his uncle, yes. Well, there's also a second reason why I don't think Polo should be given the crown of the great Silk Road traveller, and that's this man, my other hero, Ibn Battuta. You see, over a period of 30 years, Mikey, Ibn Battuta visited most of the Middle East, North Africa, Central Asia, India, Southeast Asia, China, even Timbuktu, as you were talking about in that SALT episode. And this is still back in the 1300s. Back in the 14th century, that's right, Mikey. He travels way further than any other explorer in pre-modern history, well over 100,000 kilometres. Now, you know, compare that to Marco Polo, who roughly travelled 25,000 kilometres at best. My man, Ibn Battuta, he even eclipses the other 
great explorer we've talked about, China's Zhang He and his amazing treasure fleets. You know, even if you put all his travels together, you come to a ballpark figure of about 50,000 kilometres. So what you're saying is that Ibn Battuta travelled twice as much as the Admiral Zheng Hei. That's right, and these travels, they're all there for us to read about in his great book, A Gift to Those Who Contemplate the Wonders of Cities and the Marvels of Travelling, which is more commonly known as the Rilar, the Travels. Yeah, but mate, let's be honest, was this book sort of made up in the same way that Marco Polo's travels were? Well, sure, Mikey, some of the stories may be second-hand tales. You know, he won't have gone to all the places he mentions, but unlike the many instances of pure fantasy that we get in Marco Polo, the details included by Ibn Battuta, they stack up much better when held against the light of other contemporary sources. So, Paul, that brings me to two questions. When did we get to the Green Man and where did he go? All right, well, let's start with the travels. The way he describes it, there are basically three trips from 1325 to 1354. Okay, he sets out in June 1325 and at this stage he's 21 years old. Look, it's pretty standard stuff. It's the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca. But the interesting thing is he decides not to go as part of a group, which is the normal way for pilgrims, but to set out on his own. And this is what he says in his story. I set out alone, having neither fellow traveller in whose companionship I might find cheer, nor caravan whose part I might join, but swayed by an overmastering impulse within me and a desire long cherished in my bosom to visit these illustrious sanctuaries. He's got a nice turn of phrase, Paul. Yeah, that's right, Mikey. And at the beginning, it doesn't seem he's in much of a rush. He actually goes overland rather than by ship across the Mediterranean, which would have been much quicker. And he spends the first two months in Tunis, you know, present day Tunisia. And he even finds time to get married while he's there, although it does seem that he leaves quickly afterwards following a dispute with his new father-in-law. So we're talking about a pretty impetuous guy. <laughs> That's right, he does seem a bit gung-ho and he's soon off to Alexandria and then Cairo, the rest of Egypt. And it's there that he supposedly has his fortune told, predicting that he would travel to India and China, although I must admit that's probably a bit of poetic licence. But for the moment he's still on his Hajj, he's got to get to Mecca and the original plan was to sail up the Nile and then cross the Red Sea. But unfortunately, that gets scuppered. So he ends up on a bit of a roundabout route via the three other main key holy cities of Islam, Damascus, Jerusalem and Medina. But not the green man. (laughs) No, we're not quite at the green man yet, but we are now in Mecca, 1326. And rather than heading home after completing his Hajj, he joins another caravan of pilgrims heading up into Iraq and does a sort of substantial detour around Iran before ending up in Baghdad. Now, it's worth pointing out at this stage, Mikey, that Baghdad is part of the Il Khanate, one of the key pieces of the Mongol jigsaw following the fragmentation of the original Mongol Empire. Yeah, that's right. We talked about that in the Khazar episode. In the north, the Mongols become the Golden Horde. That's right. And in Baghdad, in the heart of the old Abbasid Caliphate, it's become the Il Khanate. And let's not forget, Mikey, by this stage, Baghdad, unfortunately, is not in such great shape because parts of the city are still ruined by the damage inflicted by the original invasion by Hulagu Khan's army in 1258. Which is about 70 years earlier from where we're talking now. That's right, and key to our story, by this stage, these Mongols have turned to Islam. So much so that Ibn Battuta's happy to fall in with these Mongol Khans and has a few more trips to look around. And when you read this part of his book, Mikey, you know, all the details he describes, they certainly tally with what we know from other contemporary accounts. Yes, like I said, some of the side trips might be a bit far-fetched. You know, one bit has him going up to Russia, which probably didn't happen. But most of the next bits stack up pretty solid, you know, and we can be pretty certain that they end up 
with him heading back to Mecca for a second pilgrimage and then on to the Yemen coast, Aden, Somalia, Mogadishu, even Mombasa, what was known at the time as the Swahili coast. So I'm assuming by this stage he's doing it all by ship. Precisely. He's covering massive distances, but he's sticking to the main shipping, main trade routes of the time, and most importantly, he's sticking only to the Muslim world, the lands where as a haji, a religious pilgrim, he'll be protected. Now at well, he's on one of these trips down the coast of Africa that he encounters a significant player in our story. Oh, please make it be the green man. <laughs> no, it's not the green man yet, Maggie. It's the Somali sultan Abu Bakr ibn Sayyid's Umar. So all this bit of the African coast around the Horn of Africa, Kenya, that's all under the control of Muslim rulers at the time, right? Correct. And this sultan, he has a son and heir, Hamza, who we know from other sources was a revered military leader and, more importantly, had previously travelled to China to establish ties with the Ming dynasty. So it's at this stage the penny finally drops for your mate Ibn Battuta in his way of thinking. Yes, Mikey, that's when he tells us he has his big idea. It's now 1330, 1332. He visits Omar and he goes through the Straits of Hormuz. He goes back to Arabia for a third pilgrimage. But it seems he's definitely decided to take the plunge and he decides his next mission is to seek employment with the Sultan of Delhi, Mohammed bin Tulguk, and he sets off through the Seljuk-controlled territory of Anatolia in search of India. OK, Paul, I know maps are your thing, but that's a pretty roundabout route. Well, that's right, Mikey. It would have been a lot easier to have taken a ship across the Indian Ocean. But he goes into Turkey, he goes to the Crimea Peninsula, he visits the Golden Horde, and from their capital in Astrakhan, he crosses over to the Chagatai Khanate in Central Asia, and from there to Afghanistan and the Hindu Kush. And I have to say, Mikey, this is one bit which I particularly like. He describes his encounter with those mountains like this. After this, I proceeded to the city of Barwon, in the road to which is a high mountain covered with snow and exceedingly cold. They call it the Hindu Kush, that is, Hindu Slayer, because most of the slaves brought thither from India die on account of the intenseness of the cold. OK, that's pretty moving. But, Paul, are we getting any closer to the Green Man? I mean, is the Green Man in India? <laughs> well, yes, he is in India, in fact, Mikey, but just not yet, because now it's 1333 and Ibn Battuta has reached the Indus River. From there he gets to Delhi, and in 1334 he's finally presented to the sultan he's going to see, Mohammed bin Tughluq. Hang on, so this is the 14th century, right? So we're talking about an, an Islamic ruler in Delhi long before the Mughals. Right, centuries before the great Mughal Empire, Mikey, you do have these other Muslim rulers already controlling great swathes of India. In fact, this Mohammed bin Tughluq, he's renowned as the wealthiest man in the Muslim world at the time. And of course, being such a rich ruler, as part of his prestigious court, he has various scholars and artists that he patronises, and it's in amongst these that Ibn Battuta positions himself, he's sponsored, if you like, and he becomes a caddy or one of the Sultan's judges. OK, you haven't mentioned the Green Man, but that does sound like a pretty cushy gig. Well, it should have been, Mikey, for a lot of the time it was. But unfortunately, the Sultan, he was pretty erratic even by the standards of the time. And so one minute Ibn Battuta finds himself living the high life of a trusted advisor, and the next minute he's falling under suspicion of treason for a whole variety of offences. So in actual fact, he realises he's got to get out of there and he plans to escape on the pretext of taking another Hajj 
back to Mecca. Unfortunately, the Sultan stops him and he's stuck there for almost seven years. Yeah, that's about as long as I've been waiting to hear about the Green Man. <laughs> All right, OK, so it's 1341 now. He finally gets the opportunity to leave Delhi when an embassy arrives from the Yuan dynasty of China asking for permission to rebuild a Buddhist temple up in the part of the Himalaya which has now come under the Sultan's control. So the Sultan, he decides to send an embassy back to Beijing and he puts Imbatuta in charge. Which is what he's wanted all along, right? Right, because like we said back when he was in Somalia, these were his two dream destinations, India and China. With a bit of green man thrown in on the side. Right. But unfortunately, at the start of the journey, things don't turn out too well. You see, he's actually attacked by a group of bandits. He's separated from his companions. He's robbed. He's kidnapped. He nearly loses his life. And although he catches up with his retinue and boards his ship, he's now whisked away on another series of detours via the Maldive Islands, Sri Lanka, where his ship almost sinks, Bangladesh, where he's attacked by pirates, Sumatra, Indonesia, Malacca on the Malay Peninsula, before finally in 1345 landing in Guangzhou in Fujian province. So, mate, you've said before he was sticking to the Muslim world. Does that get him all the way to China? Every step, Mikey, the Maldives, Sumatra, Malacca, even as early as the 14th century, all these major seaports along his route, what would eventually be known as the Spice Route, is under Muslim control. Incredible. Even when he gets to China, Mikey, when he visits you know, the Grand Canal in Beijing, it's striking how he repeatedly mentions the long-standing Muslim quarters in each city and the well-established Muslim traders he encounters. And this is all hundreds of years before the Dutch show up, or the French, and let's face it, the British and their empire. I know, in terms of exploration and colonisation, Mikey, Islam beats the Brits by centuries. And here, I know, is the bit you've been waiting for. As well as the fellow Muslims he encounters on the way, the other name he repeatedly mentions throughout his travels is this Al-Qadir, this figure I mentioned before, the green spirit, the green man. So your green man is really universal. Yes, in my opinion, Mikey, my green man spans the whole globe. And of course, this other hero of mine, Ibn Battuta, he himself is a bit of an Al-Qadir figure too, you know, eternal wanderer, a mysterious prophet, a green man all in his own right. OK, Paul has really got the maps out today. We've done a lot of travelling, and it's all in search of the Green Man, this universal folkloric figure. But, Paul, I think it's time for you to rest your case. OK, so we've said how the Green Man spans the globe with Ibn Battuta, and I also want to show you how he spanned the ages, right back to the ancient world. You see, this Green Man figure, it appears not only in Roman columns, which date from the 6th century AD, but right back to Mesopotamia and the 3rd millennium BC, to an epic poem called Gilgamesh, which is about this epic Sumerian hero. So the Green Man's mentioned in that? Yes, Mikey, that's got references to this Green Man figure, and it's also, as a poem, very much an influence on Homer's The Iliad and Homer's Odyssey, plus that other great epic from history, the Alexander Romance. Because in several versions of that story, this green man, this Al-Qadir figure, appears as a servant of Alexander the Great. And it's when I was reading this Alexander Romance that I realised I'd actually come full circle. I mean, in many ways, it's all the way back in medieval England. Because here was a story, the Romance of Alexander, with so many obvious parallels to the other 
epic legend which I've always been intrigued by, the Arthurian legends, and particularly the tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Hang on, the Green Knight, the Green Man. The Green Man of merry old England, precisely. And if you don't mind, Mikey, now we're back in England, I do have to finish with one final story, one other man, maybe a hero, maybe a howler, I'll let you decide, but I must mention him because... Just as I would never have found Al-Qadir's link to the Green Man without Ibn Battuta, so I wouldn't have found Ibn Battuta without another seminal name on the Silk Road travelling route, Sir John Mandeville. Never heard of him. All right, so just quickly, John Mandeville is the supposed author of The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, a memoir which first circulated between 1357 and 1371. So just after Ibn Battuta and his books. Correct. We're talking late 14th century, during that great long reign of Edward III's in England. Although the earliest surviving text is actually written in French, because you've got to remember the English court at the time, that still mainly spoke French at this stage. But very soon it got translated into English, and it wasn't long before it, it was in various languages all over Europe. And just to give you an idea of how popular it was, Mikey, in the 19th century in Victorian England, it's believed to have sold more copies than any other book apart from the Bible. Now, of course, back then no one really used the term the Silk Roads, but this Silk Road travel book, if you like, it's the first to appear in English and describe the secrets of Asia and the Orient to a domestic audience. So this John Mandeville, is he like the English Marco Polo? That's right, Maggie, and like Marco Polo's book, this, The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, we know some of the greatest names in Europe went on to read it, you know, from Columbus right through to Francis Drake. All right, here we go. I had a feeling you had something else up your sleeve. So this John Mandeville, just exactly who was he? Well, in his preface, the compiler calls himself a knight, an English knight, and states that he was born and bred in the town of St Albans. Now, although the book is certainly real, it is widely believed that the Sir John Mandeville figure himself is made up. You know, most common theories point to a Frenchman, actually, to, by the name of Johann Zalabab or Johann de Bourgogne. And unfortunately, it remains a bit of a mystery as to why he changed his name. You know, Paul, the words are a bit of a mystery never quite fill me with confidence. <laughs> OK, you're right. And that's the reason why so many of the claims in the book have now been dismissed. And it's probably fair to say that the bits about India and China and the Far East, they're probably a combination of you know, regurgitated hearsay, old wives' tales, and <laughs> a bit of judicious cutting and pasting from some of the other lesser-known accounts of the period. But just as importantly, Mikey, the sections focusing on his journey to the Levant and Jerusalem and then on to the Near East, Middle East, Arabia, most scholars agree that whoever did write that, they must have had some first-hand experience, an actual traveller recounting actual travels, and so have a genuine historical merit. This is the 14th century we're talking about, Mikey, so any travel that went beyond Europe and the Mediterranean world was pretty extraordinary. And when it was published and republished and republished, as I said, yeah, like the Bible, this is a book that's never been out of print. And so for all those years, it was considered a factual account of the first ever Englishman to travel the Silk Roads. And as a manuscript, it was highly, highly prized. In fact, the oldest known version still sits in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. That's dated from 1371. There were two 15th century manuscripts in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and the British Museum, the British Library, possesses another edition of similar age. I think I'm seeing the analogy here, Paul. This book, it's sort of like the detective string pinboard pulling all the pieces together for you. That's right, Mikey, because it was The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, one of the earliest books that really inspired me. It was Sir John Mandeville who put me on to Ibn Battuta. It was Battuta who clinched it for me with The Green Man. 
and it was all three of them who started me off on my Silk Road journeys. And that's why today, Mikey, I want to put each of them on my list of heroes. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 